Uh, if you would, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to try and do an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, try and do it quickly, but also hit the most important things that uh, Paul was trying to share with a church, a young church full of the Spirit, but facing great adversity. So you turn to 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to go back to Acts 17 and give you a little bit of the story of what's going on here. In Acts 17, starting in verse 1, it says this. Uh, this is Paul, on his, Paul, Silas, and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey. It says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you, he is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. As Paul usually did, he would go first to the Jews to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Thessalonica was a major city in the province of Macedonia, one of four major cities. And there was a very prominent synagogue there where lots of Jews would gather to worship. And Paul, as he usually does, goes to the synagogue of whatever city to talk to his people about who Jesus really was and how he fulfilled the scriptures of the Messiah. And so we learn that Paul was there for at least three weeks with the Jews, three different Sabbaths, speaking with them. And then when it says many devout Greeks and even some leading women joined him as well, we can surmise that Paul was in Thessalonica for a while, months probably, after going to the Jews and then reasoning with the Gentiles as well. So Paul spends a decent amount of time in the city of Thessalonica. But then in verse 5 of Acts 17, it says, but the Jews were not persuaded. This is some of them. Becoming envious, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, who was now a prominent member of this young church, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. This Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the Jews, as they normally did, would follow Paul. Many Jews, Judaizers, they're called in some chapters. Those who are sticking to the Old Testament religious laws, that the only way to please God is to fulfill every one of those, to live by the code, the Mosaic code, and to reject Jesus as the Messiah. These types of people would follow Paul, and they start a mob in the city of Thessalonica, they go to the church, they grab people from this church out, and they uh, end up making them pay fines um, to, uh, to go back home. But they're looking for Paul and for Silas. And so in verse 10, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night 
to Berea. And so Paul continues on his missionary journey, uh, but he has to leave abruptly from this young church. And so as he's continuing to travel on his second missionary journey, that starts to bother him that he didn't get to have more time with them, and they are ever on his thoughts. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, you start to see the heart of Paul for this church if you go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, after Paul is continuing on with Silas and they uh, bring Timothy into their, to their missionary group, then he says this in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, Thessalonians, and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened. And you know, Paul is concerned about their facing trials, facing afflictions, facing suffering, facing persecution within the church, something that was happening um, so severely that he had to be smuggled out of the city. And so this is ever on his mind, and so he sends Timothy back to find out what's going on. He can't go back himself, but he sends Timothy back to find out what's going on with the church in Thessalonica. And so eventually, as he continues on from Athens, he gets to the city of Corinth, and at the city of Corinth, sometime later, Timothy finally comes back, Paul and Silas are reunited, and they have a moment to consider what's going on, and then they take some time to write this book, or this letter, excuse me, of First Thessalonians. And we get that clue in verse 6 of chapter 3, which says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, so Timothy came back and brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brother, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So if you were to read through, which I think you will be doing this week, uh, because this is part of the daily Bible reading, look for Paul's signs of affection for this church. He loves this church. Paul, throughout his ministry, had lots of people that he loved and lots of relationships that he developed, but you will see that he uses language like father and mother. I'm a father and a mother to you. I love you. I desire to come and see you. I desire to know how you're doing. I desire for you to be faithful in Christ, and that gives me satisfaction. He says that over and over and over again. You really get the sense that Paul was deeply connected to the church at Thessalonica and cared for them. So he receives good report and he's very excited. You'll also notice as you read through that he's very excited about the good things that are going on, that despite persecution and affliction right off the bat, that the spirit is moving in this church, this young church that's growing, is growing in the Lord. Many letters Paul writes, there's lots of major problems going on, but in this letter, it's a little bit different. He is, he is floored by how good everything is going for them, how faithful to Jesus they're being. But he wants to write to encourage them because he himself cannot get back to see them at this point, though he 
will try. Uh, he has not been successful so far. But he writes for two reasons. The first reason you can see in chapter 1, verse 10, after he's listed several things that impresses him about the faithfulness of this church, the faithfulness of these young Christians, he says in verse 10, uh, I'm, I'm going to start in verse 9. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. Here's a theme that's going to come up several times in the book of Thessalonians waiting for the return of Jesus. And so you're gonna, we're going to see in chapter 4 how there's actually some. Uh, very practical questions that the Thessalonians have about the return of Christ, but they are in this state of waiting, anticipating that Jesus is coming back any day. I mean, they think it's going to happen any moment, and they're waiting for him. And that's going to lead to some things that Paul needs to correct in their thinking, and that's going to lead to some encouragement that Paul is going to give them, and that's ultimately going to lead to an assurance of hope. Um, for Christians. So that's the first reason he wants to encourage them as they wait for the return of Christ. And then secondly, if you go back to chapter 3 and you look at verse 11, there's this little prayer he has for them and he sets out the rest of the book, or excuse me, the rest of the letter and the three major areas he's going to encourage them in. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ Direct our way to you. May we get back to you. I hope we can come back and see you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. That's the first thing, abound in love, just as we do, so that he may, this is the second thing, establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And the third thing he says is before our God and Father, And this is, again, continuing on the waiting for Jesus to come back at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And that is going to tie in a lot in this book to the idea of hope. So Paul is interested in encouraging, strengthening, and reminding the Thessalonians how to abound in love, how to remain holy in their lives, and how to hope in the return of Jesus Christ And all of these three things he's going to put into practical, everyday ethics for these Christians to live through. Oftentimes we say, we we, we say hope or love or have faith and and it's kind of a general thing and and oftentimes we don't get specific in how we live those things out in our lives and Paul's going to get very specific for the church at Thessalonica. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to go through quickly and and show you what he says they should do while they wait for the Lord. So if you are also waiting for the return of Jesus, perhaps you can um, find some things to be doing here as well. So the first thing he's going to tackle is holiness, a life of holiness. Paul is going to describe what holy living looks like, and what holy living looks like is going to lead to faithfulness to God for the church at Thessalonica. So if you go to chapter four, we're gonna look at verses one through eight really quick. This is about holiness. Holiness in a very specific realm, but also holiness in general as well. He says this, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus 
that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So everything we've already told you about pleasing God, we want you to keep doing that. But now I want to tell you some more things. I want to get even more specific with you. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Here's what God would have you do. To be holy, you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but he called us in what? He called us in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but rejects God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The city of Thessalonica was very, very similar to most major cities in the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, sexual promiscuity was rampant. It was all about personal gain in the realm of sexuality. And in fact, Paul often talks about the need for sexual purity within the church, within the Christian life, and how that is a major uh, marker of one's desire for holiness, of one's desire to live faithful to God. And so those who reject God are those who are ruled by the passion of their lust from verse 3. And Paul says, that's not what is to be, that's not what is to be your, uh, that's, not what, that's not what you are to be like. Excuse me. God would have you do something different. The, uh, the passion of lust, that little phrase, is an indicator of what the heart craves. The culture at large around the Christians in Thessalonica are ruled by their heart's desire to be fulfilled by sexual gratification. And Paul says that is not to be what marks the Christian. And Paul's not saying that because Paul somehow thinks that we just need to be different. He's actually echoing the words of Jesus who taught specifically on the importance of sexual purity leading to holiness in our lives. And we don't have time. We could actually probably spend an entire message just breaking down verses 1 through 8 here and, and uh, the word play that Paul uses. Um, but I just want to say this. It is very reasonable to think that in verse 4, Paul is... Um, yeah, verse 4, that Paul is making clear what, um, how to be sexually pure. And that is that the gift of sex given by God is meant only for the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and that God is very specific about that. And so even back in the city of Thessalonica, all that time ago, there was um, confusion on sexuality, on when it is right, when it's okay, and what God would say about it, and what and how I should engage in it. And Paul says, here's what it's for. It's for the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. 
In Matthew 15 and Matthew 5, just so you know, I'm not making this up, Jesus taught about this as well. In Matthew 15, Jesus tells the Pharisees that you're so worried about your purity and holiness that you think that no matter what, that that you can't touch certain things or that you have to eat only certain things. You're only concerned about your purity outwardly. And Jesus says, I tell you that it's what comes from your heart that defiles you. It is what you crave in your heart. What is your God? What do you serve and worship? And in the Greco-Roman world, sex was worshiped like a God. And Paul says, echoing Jesus, that is not the marks of holy living. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I tell you that even if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery with her, that lust, that craving for something other than God to be on the throne of your heart is what makes us impure and leads us to unholy living. So it's very pointed what Paul's talking about here, but then there's also a general principle as well that is important to pick up. And then Paul's not just talking about just make sure sexually you are pure, but make sure that your heart is pure in all Things that you crave to honor and worship God, that leads to holy living. So be holy, and God says, right, be holy as I am holy. And so Paul, I think, would echo that here as well. So that's the first thing he talks about and encourages and reminds the church, the Christians at Thessalonica. Be holy, live holy in everything, especially in your sexual purity. And then he goes on and he talks about the second thing. He talks about love in verses 9 through, uh, 9 through 12. He says this, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So he's saying, listen, I, the world around you knows how much you guys love each other how much you serve each other, how much you care for each other. It is known beyond your church even. And then Paul says, and that's great, but I urge you to do more. I urge you to increase. And then he gets even specific in how these Christians can show love to each other better than how they had been before. That you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. So if you, when you read Second Thessalonians um, next week or maybe later even this week, um, you're going to notice that there's an issue, this issue of work comes up again when Paul writes back to them, again, the issue of work, and he is tying work and love together. So I'm assuming he's talking about um, acts of service as well as personal vocation. And he says, there's a way to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ through your acts of service and through your vocation. And we need to be consume, or we need to be considering, excuse me, how to do that. So there's, a, there's thinking that um, Paul brings up this word idle 
later on in, in 2 Thessalonians, that people were being idle, that as they wait for Jesus to come, they think, since it's coming so soon, I actually don't need to be worried about doing anything. I just, I just, need, to be, just need to be loving God and just hanging out here. You know, I don't need to be working. I don't need to be providing for my family. Like, he's coming. Like, what's the point? It seems to be uh, maybe a prevailing thought in part of the church here at Thessalonica. Well, that, Paul is trying to point out here that that kind of an idea burdens other Christians within the church, and it's actually causing a division in this church that might not be obvious up front, but is going to lead possibly to a break. Because if you have some people who say, I don't need to work, I just need to worship God, and that's all I need to do, and I don't need to take care of myself, but I still have to eat, I still have to have some sort of uh, money, I still have to have some sort of something to provide for my family, well then, who's going to help me out? Well then your brother or sister in Christ looks over and says, well I have something I can give you, I can help you out, and you start to have this division of those who are just, I mean, almost a parasitic relationship between Christians. And that can lead to terrible consequences in the end. So Paul says this, and he said, I already taught you this when we were there. Paul, the tent maker, by the way, who made sure he worked um, and, and earned his own money and often, often points out to churches that, hey, I didn't ask you to give me anything. I thank you for what you did give, but I never have asked you to provide for me. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. So instead of being in everyone else's business, instead of being a busybody, instead of being worried about how everyone else is acting, you make sure that what you're doing is honoring Christ and you work with your own hands. There's also an idea here that Paul is starting to tease out where we work to provide for ourselves, but as Christians, we work to give generously back as well. So, I think, that, I, think, I think that's here, right? I mean, Jesus says, give to the needy, give to the poor, give to those, right? Their generosity is, is something that God teaches his people from the beginning. And Paul's not saying, well, no, you don't need to be generous. What he's saying is, make sure you're not sucking the generosity off of someone else when it's needed somewhere else more. So you do your own work, you follow Christ, and you love each other in this way. And then that cycle of harmonious love, he says, uh, that you may walk properly toward those who are on the outside. That's going to be attractive to people when they see, I talked about the Greco-Roman world before, another thing, it was this massive divide between the rich and the poor. It's very hard for you if you were poor to ever become rich. It's very different than our culture where you could make something of yourself in that way. But if you were born a slave, a servant, or the poor lowest class, you may never ever come out of that. You may always, that might be your life. So if you're born rich, you might always have. But you would never have any reason, or very rarely have any reason, to cross those boundaries and to give to someone else or to help someone lower than you. It's just not the thinking of the hierarchy of the classes of the time. And Paul says, we should be different. Christians should be different. That we lack nothing. And then the final thing is this. So he's talked about holy living. He's talked about increasing in love through our service and our vocation. 
And he talks finally about the assurance of hope. All of this is in relation to waiting for Jesus. <clears throat> so he answers this interesting question here that the people, that the Christians at Thessalonica raise. He says this in verse 13, but I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So there must have been some question of what happens to my uh, family members or what happens to my fellow Christians who die before Jesus comes back. What's going to happen to them? I mean, we're ready to go. And as soon as he comes, Paul, you said we're going to go. We're going to be with Jesus. But if they died before he came, did they miss it? And Paul said this, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Paul wants to comfort the people, the Christians in Thessalonica who are worried about their fellow brothers and sisters who have died before Christ came back. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Not only is Jesus going to take care of those who have passed on, but listen, it's actually even better for them. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, <clears throat> and the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. He's giving them a picture of something that they would have um, understood intimately. So the idea is like when a victorious Caesar comes back to his hometown, to his home city. Let's say Rome, when he comes back to Rome. After he's fought a battle or a war and won, and he comes back, he and the army are riding back to Rome. What would happen is that there would be a delegation of prominent people and even the lowliest people would all flock and run out to meet the returning victorious Caesar. And there would be a party from the moment they got to him all the way back into the city. And it would be, uh, it'd be like a holiday. <clears throat> and Jesus says, or, sorry, Paul says, this is the same idea when Jesus comes, anybody found in Christ, whether they're living or dead, are going to be called out to meet the victorious Messiah coming, and those who have already gone on will be meeting him first. And those of us who are left, we're going to catch up. We're going to get there, but we're going to play a little bit of catch up. And so he says in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. So chapter 5, he kind of, he ties it all together. And the reason that he pointed out these three things was for a very specific purpose. It was to encourage the Christians in Thessalonica to continue on in faithfulness while they wait for the Lord. They thought it was coming any minute. And Paul, I don't know what he thought, but I assume he, he, uh, he read Jesus' words, or he knew Jesus' words that said, no man knows the coming of the hour, so always be ready. So while we wait, what can we do to glorify God, and to further the kingdom of Christ? Well, there's at least three things. Holy living, purifying our hearts and our minds so that the holiness of God that we seek to replicate, that we seek to um, reflect, touches every single part of our lives. We need to increase in our loving service to each other. 
through our works and through our words, however we relate to each other, we need to increase in those things. And then we also need to reassure each other of the hope of the coming Christ. See, when Paul said comfort each other with these things, he wanted these Christians who faced persecution to know that the hope of what was to come was comfort for the present hardship and makes it able, it would make them able to endure what they were facing. So that's what he says to the Thessalonians. I think it's safe to say we could probably draw similar conclusions in our day. We face similar things. We see similar attitudes. We are engaged with a similar type of culture in many ways. And so I think for you and I, as we wait for the coming of Christ, we need to learn how to live holy in our situation. What do you need to do to purify your thoughts, purify your words, purify your heart to God? What do you need to do to increase in your loving service to the body of Christ and to others? And what do you need to do to reassure yourself of the hope? How can you take comfort from the fact that Christ is coming and there will be no more sorrow one day and there will be no more tears or pain. There will be no more sin to deal with. That everything will be right as it was always meant to be. That's coming one day. Can you take comfort for that now? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Thessalonians. I thank you for Paul and Silas and Timothy and for these Christians who had questions and I thank you that we get a glimpse into what's going on from the ages past with your church. I pray, Lord, that you would show us in our day, in our way, how we can live these three truths. The need for holiness in every part of our life, the need for loving service to continually abound, and the need for reassurance of hope. Show us how we can re-examine ourselves, Father, and to increase in these things. Thank you for Jesus, who taught Paul what to say to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would take his words to heart, and that we would be known by our love, known by our hope, and known by our holy living, known by the faithfulness of God in this church, so that others are drawn to it uh, for the answers that they seek as well. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.